When I visited Palestinian enclaves in the West Bank back in 2008, I was told that for most Palestinians, they had one of two options. They could either embrace radicalism or they could embrace radical forgiveness. Hey, it's Lucas Grobot, and you're listening to the Lucas Grobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Today, Israel is still continues to bomb Hamas in Gaza, and it is coming at the expense of Palestinian lives, innocent women and children. Now, the narrative that is being pressed right now is that this is not a conflict, that this is not a war, that this is the Palestinians standing up in resistance against Israel, uh, an apartheid oppressor, and that Israel has no right to defend themselves, that that Israel has no right to respond. But this is absolutely false. Even even if you just go to the, the argument of this isn't a conflict, don't even call it a conflict. Notice this is exactly what they did in BLM. Now, I'm not comparing what's happening between Israel and Hamas and the war that has broken out. I'm not comparing that to what happened in America with the the BLM riots. But I am comparing the strategies and the, the radicalization of media and the way that they are redefining terms right now so that they can win a, a propaganda argument so that they can push a certain narrative so that they can pull on people's emotions rather than pointing to the realities, One, not only the realities of war, but the, the realities of international law, the realities of what it means to be an, an occupied territory, the realities of what it means that the many people argue that it's not an occupied territory, that Gaza isn't occupied anymore, which is up for debate. There's many people who argue that the West Bank is actually a a disputed territory. It's not occupied. But let's, for the sake of argument, just go and say that both the West Bank and Gaza is occupied, even though right now Israel does not have any troops on the ground in Gaza. But the argument is because Israel is controlling their air space and controls their, their waterfront that it is indeed an occupied territory. So let's assume, for the sake of argument, let's assume that it is occupied. Well, under international law, if you have an occupied state or an occupied territory by either a peaceful or a belligerent nation, and there becomes an armed conflict, there's either civilians who pick up arms and fight, or there are uniformed military that fights. Now, under international law, if if you are fighting an armed conflict like they are, it is actually a human rights violation to not be uniformed. But Hamas is not uniformed. They are, they are not walking around in uniforms. They're, they're hiding in underground tunnels. They're hiding in civilian centers. They're, they're hiding in in press buildings, they're hiding in hospitals, they're hiding in schools. Why? Because they know that if they do get bombed, if they do get their their infrastructure destroyed, that it makes a great PR piece. It makes it makes for great international media to see that Israel bombed a school. Just the fact that it bombed a school, that Israel bombed a, a, a press building 
where other reporters had said that they they saw armed guards walking around that building, that they weren't allowed on certain floors. But of course, of course, the argument is, well, this is it's just not real. They're just trying to stop the the press from reporting what's happening, even though clearly they were able to report what was happening. But it's it's I mean, honestly, Hamas is a terrorist organization that that defends and protects themselves with innocent women and children, and it is disgusting. Now, the loss of life in Gaza is horrific. It's, it's quite horrific. But the argument that Israel is purposely committing a, a genocide or ethnic cleansing, trying to destroy schools on purpose, is just ridiculous. They are having targeted attacks on Hamas's infrastructure to hopefully deter further violence, to hopefully deter further attacks against Israel. Now, another argument that I've heard, I've been the the last few days, just a barrage of messages since uh, the previous podcast, barrage of messages. And one of the, the main things that, a few different arguments that have been thrown my way is, well, it doesn't matter that Hamas is sending now over 3,000 rockets at civilian populations, some that get through, some that most that don't, about 90% don't get through. They say they have the Iron Dome, so it doesn't even matter. It, do- it doesn't even count. And you have to take a step back and you have to be like, well, what, what other nation on the face of the earth has an Iron Dome around their tiny nation? Israel is the, the size, about the size of New Jersey. It's that small. And they have an Iron Dome, a, a, an anti-missile system to defend itself. What other nation? What other nation has that? And why do they even have that in the first place? Because there, a, there's a group like Hamas or Hezbollah, because Israel now also has had some uh, missiles fired from the north out of Lebanon into Israel. They have enemies that are surrounding them. Since 1948, when they declared themselves a nation, the next day, the Arab League turned and said, we are going to destroy this Jewish nation. And they defended themselves. And in the process, Israel, the Jews, did commit what many say, and I agree, are are war crimes of wiping out entire Arab settlements and villages. And this is what is is known as the Nakba, horrific, tragic massacres in the wake of the, the 1948 war. And since that point, Israel has had to defend themselves in 1967, Six-Day War, where again, the nations turned on Israel to defend themselves. So why do they have an Iron Dome? Why do they have an Iron Dome in the first place? Because there are militants who, whose sole purpose for existence is to destroy Israel. Now, back to the the fact that these are occupied territories. If they're occupied territories and there is an armed conflict, then under international law, that is considered an armed conflict. It's not just a resistance, as the, the BLM rhetoric would like to tell you. It is a war. It is a conflict. It is a military that has 
millions of dollars of weaponry and rockets that are firing against Israel, firing against civilian populations. And Israel is doing what they have to do to destroy and dismantle that military network to defend their civilians. Another argument that is continually thrown my way is, oh, it's an apartheid state. Israel is an apartheid state. Well, just look, if, if, if an Israeli Jew and a Palestinian, that's not an Israeli, a Palestinian commits the same crime in the West Bank, they're tried under two different courts. That's evidence of an apartheid state. But, you, but, but they fail to, to remember that the whole argument that they've been making is that we don't want to be under Israel's rule. We are an occupied territory. If you are an occupied territory and you refuse to make peace, which there's been multiple offers to make peace, and in those peace treaties, not only in the, the 1994 Oslo Agreement, but in the 2008 Agreement, what was on the table? Israel was offering the right to return, which is a, a big argument and it's under the, the, the Geneva Convention, the fourth agreement or article of the Geneva Convention, saying that people who flee in a state of war, they flee their property, they have the right to return if, it says this, it says, if they're able to live peaceably with their neighbors, then they have the right to return to their property or they can be compensated for the value of the property. Well, right now there's not been peace. And so under international law, if people are in nations that do not recognize them, do not have peace with them, then it's assumed that these people, these refugees are hostile to the other nation that they fled from. And therefore, there is no, there's no need, there's no legal demand to actually return the property or compensate for that property. Now, this is not just this has not just happened in Israel, but this has happened between Pakistan and India and Kashmir. Nearly the same, the same exact scenario. But they'd like to tell you that it's an apartheid. But going back to the, the peace treaties that have been offered, like the one in 2008. Now the argument in 2008 was that, well, they didn't have they weren't given ports which is something that they wanted. They wanted an airport. I guess that wasn't in the deal, and so it was called off. But what was in the deal was the right to return. The right to return, Israel said, we'll, we'll give people the right to return. We'll give people the ability to become Israeli citizens, and they can be all equal underneath the law. But they don't want that. And so since they are in a occupied territory, they do not want and they are not at peace, they do not have a, a, a peace agreement, and they've not come to peace since 1948 with Israel, well then, of course, you're going to be tried under different legal systems because you're not a part of that system. You're not a citizen of that system. And, well, the argument then continues, well, they should. They, they should, and they, they should be a part of that system. They should have equal rights. Well, that would mean that Israel would have to annex the entire West Bank, and how do you think that's going to go? How do you think it would go if Israel said, okay, well, the entire West Bank is now ours, and therefore you can all be, you can all be Israeli, and you can all enjoy the, the, the same rights that every other Israeli-Palestinian has, Israeli-Arab has? That would not go well. 
because they want to have their own state. And and I think they should. I think I think they should be able to have their own state. I think that the the Palestinian Authority should be able to have and be able to establish their own government and their own state and make terms for peace with Israel. Now, I misspoke in the previous episode where I said that Hamas had denied uh, peace treaties with Israel. I misspoke and someone kindly corrected me. It was actually the PA that denied and rejected peace treaties. And the argument was that, well, they, they didn't have the things that they wanted. They didn't get they didn't get ports, which is something that's important to them. And I can understand why. So there's there there are arguments on that side. But going back to the the apartheid, if you if you want to have equal rights underneath the law when you're not part of a nation, then you need to join that nation. But that's not happening. That that isn't happening. But with inside the green line, that is with inside the state of Israel, not Palestine and not Gaza, but with inside Israel, it doesn't matter whether you're Arab or Jewish or if you're a Christian or if you're an Indian, you all have equal rights under the law. Now, it is true that Israel is set up as a Jewish nation to protect a Jewish ethnic identity. And this is not dissimilar to many other nations around the world. You look at the United Arab Emirates, a great nation. I, I lived in the UAE for a number of years. It is a fantastic place to live. And they have different rights. Emiratis, the, the Emiratis have different rights underneath the law because that nation is set up to protect that ethnic group. And that's right. That's okay. There's many nations across the earth that is like that. And so what I see, I see the, the changing of terms. It's not a conflict. Don't even call it a conflict. There aren't even two sides. The changing of terms. And then at the same time, the conflating of terms where they're, they're messing with language in order to prove an argument, in order to pull on your heartstrings. Another argument that I hear, it's, well, it's not even a, it's not even a, a fair fight. One side has stones and the other side has nukes. Well, okay, well, that's not the way that you'd measure a conflict in the first place. And true, too, that's just categorically untrue. You can see that there are thousands of missiles being sent. Well, that doesn't matter because the iron don't. The other point is that Israel is using constraint. So another argument that was thrown my way was, well, you know, Israel has such amazing secret forces and spies and intelligence. Why don't they try to take these top commanders out in other ways, like with snipers or something? And I thought about that. I'm like, okay, how, how, how might Israel dismantle or try to dismantle a military power like Hamas, with in in a way that has less ca human casualties, less civilian casualties, less loss of women and children. Well, if they send ground troops in, what do you think that one would look like? It would be a full-on invasion, and two, the loss of life, the loss of 
women and children, the civilian loss of life would be far, far, far greater, far greater. The, the, the third argument that is continually pushed, continually pushed is, well, you see, I don't even know why there needs to be a Jewish state because Israel's or Jews and Arabs have lived peacefully for thousands of years before 1948. And it wasn't until 1948 that there was problems. And the argument from the other side comes that, well, it's because Israel became a state, because the Jews became a state and began, became, began immigrating and stealing land, that that is the problem, that the Jews caused all the trouble. And if there wasn't a Jewish state, then there wouldn't be a problem. But that just is factually, historically not true. It's historically not true to claim that there weren't any conflicts or that Arabs and Jews lived peacefully for thousands of years before Israel became a nation in 1948. All you have to do is take a quick glance throughout history. You can see that from, from the beginning of Islam in Medina in 627, there was conflict between Jews and Arabs. There's there's a point where some Jewish people were trying to overthrow Muhammad. They were actually trying to assassinate him in Medina. And that, that coup, that plot was foiled. And so the Jews were two villages, were exiled and ethnically cleansed. And one whole village was wiped out. And that was just the beginning of it. In 628, there was another massacre. Then you can, you can look across a map and you can see that whether it's in Tripoli in 1492, whether it's in, in Spain in 1013, 1033, whether it's in, in Granada in, in 1066, Algiers, 1736, 1805, 1815, 1813, conflict, conflict between Jews and Arabs where there's either ethnic cleansing or there's Jews are, are being put in um, cleansed or separated into quarters or massacres. You can see in Basra in, in 1776, which is in now modern day uh, Iraq. You can see in Baghdad in 1828, 1941. Massacres against Jews. You can see in Iran, 1830 massacres, 1867 massacres. You can, you can see that in 1925, 1929, in Jaffa in 1921, there were massacres, uprisings, revolts against Jews. And then the argument then plays, okay, well, well, in... It's when the Jews began became coming. It was after Belford, when the the British Empire said that we're going to create a a Jewish nation, a Jewish state. That that's that's when it really happened. But really, you can look back to in the in the Palestinian region, the Palestine region, Israel, Lebanon region. In eighteen thirty four, there were massacres against Jews. 
So it didn't start. It didn't start in 1848. It's not the fact that there is a Jewish nation that all of a sudden that there are conflicts between Jews and Arabs. It has a, is a long and riddled history. A long and riddled history. Now, the onus is always being put on in these arguments I'm having. <laughs> they're being put on the British Empire, saying, well, the British Empire, they were the ones that wrongfully, in the Belford Agreement in 1917, they were the ones that said, let's make a state for the Jews. But actually, it was the Ottoman Empire in 1880 that they were the ones that initiated the immigration of Jews into the region, into, into what is now modern-day Israel-Palestine, into Syria. The Ottoman Empire saw that the Jews were really great economic drivers, so they incentivized Jews to come and settle in that region. Now, the Ottoman Empire covered, it, it covered not only Israel, but it covered Syria, Lebanon, Jordan. It covered Iraq, down to Kuwait. And the Ottoman Empire even covered most of Saudi Arabia. And it was in 1917 that the Belford Agreement and the, the UN, they, they split up the region and they divided it and they gave, they, they set up nations. They set up these nation states in 1917 and onwards. And what they were doing was they, in the Belford Agreement, they said, we, the British Empire, we're going to essentially steward these lands because there's not enough infrastructure for a full-on government. There's not enough military to be able to defend their borders from another invasion. And this is what was called the, uh, the British Mandate. And so the, that mandate or Mandate Palestine it was not a mandate as in force, but it was a mandate that this is our mandate, our, our, our charge to, to steward these lands until we're able to set up thriving governments. And that's what they did. And they chose to divide the land. So, And this is where it gets sticky. They say, well, they stole all this land from the Arabs. That's the argument. They stole all this land from the Arabs. The Ottoman Empire actually owned 95% of the property. It was the, the government was owning nearly all of the property. There was a very small percentage of private property ownership of the Jews and a very small percentage of private proper, property ownership of the Arabs. Back in the 1800s and the early 1900s before 1917. And then when the British Empire took over, again, it was mostly under government ownership. And so it was the government was splitting up government land and giving it to certain nation states to create a state not only for Israel, but a state for Lebanon, for Syria, for Iraq, and Transjordan. So when they were splitting up Palestine, it was not just that little strip of, of land, but Palestine actually also incorporated all of Transjordan, or what's now Jordan, and even up a little bit into Syria, I believe. And so it's when, when we look at percentages, what percentages was of land was given to the Jews in Palestine and not to Arabs, 
Well, you have to you have to look at what was all underneath the British mandate, and you can see that a, a much larger portion of land was given elsewhere. The reason that I'm belaboring, I know that I'm belaboring this point, is because when when we look at when we look at the argument, as we 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 looked at it this last episode, well, where did this all start? Where did this all begin? Who, who you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? And you keep on going back and back and back and back through history, and it always. It, in modern history, the conversation that I'm having, it always goes back to what happened in 1948, where the nations, the Arab League, turned against Israel. Israel defended itself and in the process took land. And in the process, there were massacres of Jews against the Arabs, by Jews against Arabs, Palestinians. As you can imagine, the, the pain, the hurt, the suffering. I have been talking to some friends and, and hearing moving, moving stories about grandparents being kicked off land, fleeing in 1948, and then having their, their land seized and, and stolen and not being able to return, having their, their grandparents die in Palestine, in the West Bank. I, can, I, could, I can't imagine what that would feel like, but the pain and the anger of, of generation after generation in the last 70 years of that happening. The only option that I too could see as I, as I started at the beginning of this episode is either embrace radicalism and, and, and stand up and try to, to fight to, to feel justified, to feel, to feel as if justice is served, that dignity is finally served. Because as I said, I, when I went to, to the Palestinian enclaves, it's, it, was truly, it was truly shocking to see the quality of life, the standards of life, that people were living in, that the Palestinians were living in there. And they do deserve dignity. They do deserve justice. They do deserve peace. They do deserve right. They, they deserve justice for their years of suffering. But that will not happen. That will not happen through embracing radicalism. That will not happen by choosing to pursue further bloodshed. Because bloodshed begets bloodshed. And so the way that I see it is we can either we can either embrace radicalism on both sides, or we can embrace the radical middle. We can embrace radical repentance radical forgiveness, radically seeing the other person. And I think about my marriage. If I, if I do not take a moment, even when I feel wronged, which of course the wife is always right, but even when I feel wronged, when I feel pain, if I just hold on to that and hold on to that tightly and I refuse to see that I wronged her as well, 
and I refuse to come to a place of radical repentance and radical forgiveness, then we never mend, we never heal. And this is, this is the storyline of hope that we can have. Because I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you're probably not in, in the military somewhere at a high-ranking position that's making these decisions. And I do believe that there are circumstances for just war. I do believe in just war, that there's, there are times where it is, it is the just and moral thing to go to war. And I know that many of my friends who I've been talking with, that is what they're saying. They're saying that it is the right and moral thing for, for Hamas, for Gaza, for Palestine to go to war against Israel. That is, that is their opinion. So I believe that there's just war. But I also know that for you and I, if we fall into our echo chambers, if we fall into our echo chambers, we will only become more and more and more radicalized. You know, uh, the, the things that people are posting on social media is quite shocking right now. There are posts of people reposting quotes from Hitler, where Hitler said, I would have killed all the Jews, but I left some of them so you could just see how wicked they were. People are posting that and celebrating that. People are, are backing Hamas, openly backing Hamas, calling them heroes and freedom fighters. A terrorist organization. And at the same time, they're saying, well, the IDF is a terrorist organization. Israel is a terrorist organization. Israel is guilty of ethnic cleansing. They're trying to ethnically cleanse. When in the bylines of Hamas, it is, we want to ethnically cleanse. Now, it's not everyone. Actually, I've had a number of conversations with my Arab friends, some Palestinian friends even, where they say, yeah, Hamas is a big problem. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. And Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. And so it's important to differentiate that. It's important to look and say, here's Hamas, a, a hell-bent organization whose sole intent is to destroy Israel. And then there are Palestinians who are living, whether it's in Gaza or the West Bank, that are bystanders of someone else's violence, who are, who are bystanders, who do not have voices that are actually standing up for them, for actually speaking for them. They do not have a government that's actually speaking for them. At least that, the people that I've talked to, that's how they feel. But for us, for us, for you, for I to move forward, the solution that I see is not further siloing, not further uh, uh, canceling and blocking, which has happened to me a, a number of times this week. But the solution is radical forgiveness, radical repentance, where we look each other in the eye and, and we say, I messed up here, 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 here. And I forgive you for these things, for the other side. Because the, the conflict, the conflict between Palestine and Israel, the conflict between Arabs and Jews, even though we can see that it dates back 
1637 to Medina. It actually dates back much further than that, before Islam was even around. The story of, of Israel and the Arab people, the Jewish and the Hebrew and the, the Arab people coming about goes all the way back to where they tr- trace, both trace their ancestry, back to Abraham, where Abraham had his wife, Sarah. She couldn't give birth, so she had her, her, her maidservant, Hagar, who was Egyptian, said, here, here, Abraham, take Hagar. She can have you give, give a baby to us. Well, <laughs> Abraham did that. They had a baby, and he was named Ishmael. Later on, Sarah gets pregnant, has a baby, names him Isaac. Isaac goes on to become the, the Hebrew Jewish people. Ishmael goes on to become the Arab people. Well, the story goes that Hagar was laughing or mocking Sarah, and Sarah was jealous and angry, spiteful. So Sarah kicks Hagar and Ishmael out and sends them into the desert. Ethnic cleansing, right? Here, here's where it all begins. And they go out into the desert, and, and an angel, the story goes, an angel appears to Hagar and says, God has heard. God has heard. And saves Ishmael, saves Hagar, gives them water. She she opens her eyes and she sees the well. And the angel promises that Ishmael will become a great and powerful nation. And from that point, you can can look through the, the Old Testament, you can look through the Torah, and you can see for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, conflict between the Ishmaelites and the Israelites. And that continues on today. That continues on today. It's not about a Jewish state. It's about centuries and millennials of bitterness, unforgiveness, and of rivalry. And that can happen to any one of us. That can happen in in this polarizing world more than ever before. And so we're going to get into our Weaver and Loom quote. But before I do, if you found this, this outline, this story, history helpful, and you want to learn more, you want to, to grow with your community in this, then I, I strongly suggest sharing this and having a conversation about this with a friend. Because as we share about this, as we talk about this and ask questions, and be challenged on points, that is where our learning begins to grow. Don't go away. We'll be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destiny. So today's quote actually comes from the Bible. Uh, no better place to take it from, especially when we are looking at a conflict between two religions. I know, again, another argument that I've heard, it's, oh, this is nothing to do with religion. This has to do with humanity and human rights. And it's like, okay, sh- sure. 
there, there, there is some truth to that many Jews aren't Jewish and that they're ethnic, but really at the root of it, it it's very clear to see that there are religious tensions. And even when you look at Hamas as an organization, and you can even look at uh, Zionists or Zionists as an organization as well, and you can see that both are making religious claims to land and religious claims for action. So, you know, we can we can say what we'd like it to be or not be about, but of course, there is definitely an element, uh, a religious element to this conflict. So, since we're on religion and a religious uh, element to the conflict, here is a solution, which is do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As I mentioned before, there, there is a place for just war. I think there is definitely a time and a season to go to war and that the, the government wields the sword, the government wields the executive power, and the government has a, a right to defend their people. And that is their role. But for you and I, for you and I, our, our role is not, is not one of government. And I really believe, I believe the, I don't know if it's a maxim, but I believe the, I believe that politics follows culture. And if we can create a culture of forgiveness, of radical forgiveness, if, if we can create a culture of overcoming evil with good, if we can create a culture of breaking down echo chambers, breaking away from radicalism, using critical thinking, and using humility, and recognizing areas that we may be wrong. Now, if you are on the the pro, you know, I'm I'm actually on the pro Palestinian side. I am pro Palestinian and anti Hamas. And I think that I think that's a, a very important distinction to make. So if you are finding yourself on the anti-Israel side or the pro-Hamas side, where you say, "Well, Lucas, you didn't bring up any of the the things that Israel has done." Well, I, I can think of things. I I can definitely say these settlements that they're doing which is a big argument. Well, these settlements, they're illegal settlements in occupied territory. Even, even if they aren't illegal because of the 1994 Oslo Agreement and they are legal, it doesn't seem to be a good idea for Israel to push forward with building these settlements. And I know a number of them have been destroyed since 2005. But it doesn't seem like a good policy as it just continues to stir the nest and it isn't necessarily making for peace. So I think when we, when we look at what radical forgiveness means, it is first seeing the other person. Second, it is taking ownership for where we fall short, which is repentance, recognizing that we had wrong in the, in the relationship. And the last one, is forgiving the other person of where they harmed us. And if we can do that in our communities, if we can do that in our, 
our circle of, of friends and family. And we can have radical reconciliation between family members, brothers and sisters. Radical reconciliation that can, that can heal and restore families and put families back together. Because when you look at history, this is a, a history of, of a broken family that stretched back thousands of years. But if you and I are able to do that in our personal lives, our lives will be better. Our communities will be stronger. Our lives will be more filled with love, joy, and peace if we can step into that place of radical reconciliation. And that is my vision for what I see happening right here in the region. My hope and my prayer is a radical reconciliation. Radical reconciliation, radical forgiveness, because there is hope. There is hope for that. It's all for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to essentially give value for value, if you got value out of this episode, I would just ask, give the value that you feel like you got out of it back to it because that's another way to multiply your learning. It really is. When you give to something, when you invest your dollars into something, you're more committed to it, you pay more attention to it, and you can get more out of it. So you can go over to the website, lucasscrobot, L-U-C-A-S-S-K-R-O-B-O-T.com. The link's in the show notes. And you can give value for value there. You can even go over to and listen on the Breeze app and you can stream Satoshis as you listen. That's all for this episode. I hope that you go out this week and discern the truth. Discern the truth. Ask the questions about the questions. Break past the surface level spins and propaganda and begin to look a little deeper. Look back a little further in history to understand. To understand the, the terminology, the definition. And then uncover your purpose. Reconcile with people around you because it's people around you that have your, your destiny is locked in people around you. So unlock your purpose this week. And finally, go out and own your future. 